I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. It's uh, great to have you with us. It's been a minute, Seth. It has been. What have we been doing, man? There's almost like there's other things going on than <laughs> podcasting. It does seem like this. We, yeah, I think some people were nervous. We were on the track of most podcasts where you do a couple episodes and then sort of forget about it. Yeah. But we haven't forgotten. We have not. And fortunately, we have a lot to say. <laughs> we do. And so uh, just remind us when we say we're here to critique the hell out of culture, why do we say that? Well, we talk about how things can be heavenly. You know, I had a cup of coffee that was heavenly. Mm. It's 65 degrees and a little cloudy in Arizona. Heavenly. Uh, so the the, the uh, adjectival form of the, the noun heaven, adjectival, hell can be hellish. There's hellish things. The ways in which the stain of sin has uh, corrupted or distorted or abused the good creation that God's given us. And that manifests itself in so many ways. Uh, in our culture, in our own lives, our own moral purity, that there are pockets of hell. And even like now we can have foretastes of the new creation. Yeah. We can experience um, like these inbreakings of goodness <laughs> of what God has yeah. given us. There are also many ways in which our current culture moment can be a foretaste of hell. Yeah. So we're, we're not, this isn't like grumpy guys ranting podcast. Uh, <laughs> we could go you, there. <laughs> you be the judge of that. You be the judge of that. But it is saying, Hey, where there are hellish parts of our culture, where there are hellish parts of our thinking, uh, where there are parts of our lives and thinking that don't line up with uh, the scripture and with the Lord, we want to be able to critique that, which means, as we've said, that we're often going to be self-critical. This is, uh, you know, there's a lot of hellish stuff that, that gets into us. And so where we're critiquing that, we're also critiquing ourselves. And so uh, we just want to remind you, too, as you listen, that this is really largely for the Redemption Church Gateway family. Um, and we're trying on this podcast to kind of swim in the deeper end of the pool. We're going to dive into some stuff that's a bit more uh, theological and philosophical and potentially heady. And uh, my guess is that if you're listening, it's because you kind of dig that sort of stuff. So um, my, my encouragement to you, though, as you listen, would be that all of that stuff is still supposed to lead us into love, um, that we are not supposed to have knowledge for its own sake. Uh, knowledge by itself, the scripture says, puffs up. Um, but we're supposed to love, which builds up. And so even as we pursue these things about knowledge, and that's what we've been talking about, right? We talked about knowledge of God. We talked about knowledge of his world. Today, we're going to talk about knowledge of self. This will kind of conclude this uh, three-part opening series on knowledge. Uh, remind us, Seth, why, why was it so important to start with the idea of knowledge? Well, the, the reason we started there was, one, we wanted to proceed from a position of knowing God. I think that all good theologizing, all good cultural analysis, all good um, conversations about who we are and what we're for begin with uh, God, our first principles, who he is. Secondly, just interesting that that's basically where all um, philosophical speculation begins too. Um, knowledge, epistemology, that's like the capstone philosophical discipline is what does it mean to know things, to know places, to know situations, to know self? How do you know? What are the means of knowing? And so going from the knowledge of God first, we basically define knowledge that it ultimately is kind of about instinct, hmm. not necessarily about just 
confession that you can say you know something, but until you're able to act on that knowledge, you don't really have knowledge yet. So we call that like the tacit or embodied or instinctual dimension of knowledge. Kind of the, I think the helpful illustration is you could ask a major league baseball player, how do you know to swing at a curveball? <laughs> and the answer is thousands of hours. Right. Right. You didn't read a book. Yeah, it's not a conscious knowledge. It's a, I just see it and I react. Yeah. I see. I I've sense. I've been trained. I I've trained my instincts. Yeah. And so knowledge of God is very much like that. It's time spent with him. It's about covenant friendship. And the way you become friends is time spent. It's connection. It's proximity. And when it comes to knowledge of God's world, we want to recognize that God wrote two books. Book one, creation. Book two, the scriptures. And how one interprets the other, but they mutually interpret in many ways. And how fundamentalism rejects the, the book of creation. And how naturalism rejects the book of the scriptures. Mm. But how those two working together provide a meaningful way of knowing what's going on in God's world. So if we're going to know God, and then we're going to know God's world, um, and especially those two books, I mean, those kind of come out of Reformed thinking, especially John Calvin. Uh, he famously said in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, nearly all of the wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're going to dig into today is knowledge of self. So um, I guess the first thing, you know, I, I think some people would hear the idea of self and think, well, anything re- related to myself is bad, right? Jesus says yeah. we need self-denial. Uh, if you're going to follow me, you got to pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. So why would I spend any time reflecting on myself if myself is bad and needs to be denied? So maybe I guess I'd start there. Is the self good or bad? Yeah, well, this even gets back to something we talked about our last episode is how we are always subjects encountering objects. So objective reality, objective truth exists, but we can never in a fully non-biased way access it. Hmm. We see it through our eyes. We hear it through our ears. So we're always subjects encountering objects. And for me to be able to as meaningfully as possible interact with the world outside of my eyes and ears, I kind of want to be aware of the lenses I'm wearing, of the filters I have on. And so self-awareness and kind of knowing where I'm at, where I'm coming from, who I am, who I'm not, actually helps me see the lenses I'm looking through, Mm. even though I can't fully take them off. Mm. And so uh, knowledge of self, even that John Calvin quote you talked about, um, knowledge of self, um, that's not some type of like self-actualization. John Calvin did not take a bunch of personality tests. <laughs> John I, Calvin wasn't worried about Eastern mysticism yeah, there and yoga yeah. and, and the Enneagram and some of the other things, even that we would find helpful. In the context of what Calvin's talking about, he's talking about knowledge of self as created and sinner. Mm-hmm. That, I'm, that I am the workmanship of God who has gone astray. Yeah. And so there would be a simultaneous high view and low view of self, that I am creation, I am image of God, I am, in that sense, good, and I am depraved, sinful, turned inward, selfish, um, lustful, astray, wandering, Yeah, I'm bad. And so that question is, is self good or bad? I think there's a variety of schools of thought there. Well, and this is this is what I love about these conversations is I think part of what we're trying to do is help us see the water we swim in. 
right? The old, the old adage, it's almost cliche. You ask a fish, how's the water? He says, what water? Um, and, and these conversations, I hope part of what we do is bring out some ways that just some of the water we're in, some of the things that we instinctively see. And so, and then be able to contrast that with a biblical approach. So, so there's some, when we think about, is this good or bad? There are some, there's a biblical way to think about self and there are some unbiblical ways. So talk about that. This is one of the reasons why I think there's such a generational gap here is that millennials and Gen Zers in particular would fall into what I would call like the self-expression camp. Mm. And obviously not monolithically, but probably 70, 80%. Okay. Their view of self would be that there's a me that is the true me that's deep inside and I have to go find it, kind of eat, pray, love. I'm going to go in this like self-finding situation. And that self is fundamentally good, and I need to find it and let it out of its cage. And anything that gets in the way of me finding that good self and letting it out of its cage is oppression and social evil. And so that would be like what I call the self is good camp or the self-expressionist camp. And that's really rooted. It's interesting how like it became really popular in the U.S., like 1960s, 70s. And so it's a lot of folks who are now parents to uh, like people who grew up in the 60s and 70s after this had been normalized, but it didn't really tip the scale into like a normal sense. So that's like part of why like an older generation would look at even the way that millennials and Gen Zers process through issues like transgender things and be just totally flabbergasted. Like someone could just go, I looked down deep inside myself and I saw my true self down in there somewhere and that self is different then my body, that self is different than what my parents think it is. That self is different than what society tells me it is. And that self is good, and I need to express it, and you need to affirm it, or you're oppressing me. Hmm. So it's a hyper-good view of self, and it's a hyper-individualized, psychologized view of self because it's on the person to experience their self deep down inside there and let it out. Well, and when you talk about that this, you know, I think you kind of, the umbrella you gave this was the idea of self-expression and idolizing of self-expression. I think they're, um, of course, about like digging deep and finding the true self. I also think about the idea of constructing a self. Yes. Right. And the idea that I need to create an identity and maintain that created identity and Holy smokes, the pressure that that creates. If I have to look down within, find out whatever that is, and then build out an external reality that matches that internal reality because I have to express myself and therefore I'm fragile, and therefore if anybody confronts that image of me, they're, they're, it hurts really bad, and I mean so much anxiety with that, so much uh, whew, pressure. Is that part of the self-expression piece uh, as well, or is that slightly different? It's loose, but it's, it's uh, I would say that, like, that self-constructivist view is probably the function of most people, but if you talk to someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria and wants to be affirmed in their trans identity, really what's going on is like, there is the true me. I didn't make it up. It is what it is. And affirm me or you're oppressing me. Mm. Whereas I think the kind of the self-marketing project or the self-branding project, the uh, you're shaping, like it's kind of the self is commodified. Mm. Like you are marketing yourself to the world and you're trying to project an image and making sure Instagram looks a certain way that represents the you you want to be. And so you kind of shape a public image. 
I think a lot of the anxiety comes from the recognition that that's created and it's not true. And so I think that the public creation image is actually like a younger generation who's actually still buying into the, the bad view of self. Hmm. Like there's the me that I see and I don't like it. So I need to like put this facade up in order to be likable and assimilate to society and to be valuable and like the, um, people want me around and are willing to pay me to do things, Hmm. uh, self. So the other view of the self, which is not like the self-expression view, which I would would consider like generally progressive is the self-conquest view. Hmm. This is the old view. Okay. The self is overwhelmingly bad. I need to conquer it. Hyper discipline. Uh, this is kind of like the school of thought that gave us boot camp, mm-hmm. right? We need to teach these young people discipline, how to repress their kind of selfishness, and we need to kind of beat it into them. And like that's why, even like in the Higley School District, there's the Higley Schools, then there's the Higley Traditional Academy, mm. where they, or even like you. I think you send your kids to a traditional academy of sorts. Uh, they're part of a, a classical charter school. Yeah. It's it, with no pop culture. You know, you yeah. have to have a plain backpack. You can't have a Spider-Man backpack. I mean, no pop culture references. Focus yeah. on the classics. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, one of the th- high values is we need to teach these kids discipline. And we need to teach them to, in many ways, see themselves a part of like human history, you're not this brand new person who's discovering the self. Like you, yeah. you're you a product of what's come before you. So there's more of a connectedness to history in this kind of self-conquest view. And there's a recognition, even conservatively, that people have a tendency to really mess up history. So, and so much of like the reason society puts seatbelts on children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, is because we recognize that if we don't put seatbelts on them, they will ruin a lot of stuff. <laughs> Right. And so society is here to help us restrain ourself. Mm. Society serves us in not allowing us to fulfill all of our desires. Society is a blessing to us in the way it constrains our desires and doesn't allow us to act on all of them. Mm. So they would see that this social disapproval that helps us repress our disordered desires as fundamentally a blessing, whereas the self-expressionist progressive story would see it as fundamentally oppressive in its oppression. How dare you not let me express myself? So now when I hear those two, I go, well, I want the more conservative one. Like that feels better. Like that feels wiser. That feels more moral. That feels uh, like a a better thing. I'm not sure it's biblical. It may just be traditional. (laughs) It may just be conservative. Um, you know, maybe the self-expression view has too high of a view of the self. Maybe the uh, self-conquest view has too low. How, so or, <laughs> where Resolve, do we go here? Yeah. Is what is do, Are those my two choices or do I have a third choice? Yeah, so over and against self-conquest, which I would consider as generally conservative or traditional, and self-expression, which I would say is generally liberal progressive, I think a biblical, like the language I like to use is self-control. Hmm. It's a biblical word. Very biblical word, self-control. And I think that this idea of the the ability to control yourself, um, it is kind of worth noting that almost every single time uh, the the word self, the idea of self appears in the New Testament, it is negative. Hmm. It is the flesh. 
it is referencing the self apart from Christ. It is referencing the self insofar as it's not controlled by the Spirit. And so, generally speaking, I do think that the biblical view of self is closer to the conservative view than to the progressive view. However, there is also this reality of both creation and fall that we have. Mm. That there is a sense in which Luke Simmons, on his own, even before he met God, and before he became a Christian, before he had the Spirit in his life, that there are gifts and skills, inclinations, talents, contributions, and there's even things that uh, I would describe as good because you're created, mm. uh, but not so good that your goal in life is to express yourself. Mm. Yeah. But then the Spirit comes into our life, convicts us of sin, and shows us the parts of ourself that are atrocious, um, hateful, and we're able to see the self as created and therefore good in that all of our desires are rooted in creation, but though often those desires become distorted desires. And so the goal is not to eliminate desires, but to conform the desires to Christ. Mm. And this is what I think the Psalm talks about, that God gives us the desires of our heart I often heard that taught as, if you love God, he'll give you what you want. Which in, in most contexts was a spouse. <laughs> That's where yes. I usually heard that verse. Yeah, the <laughs> desires of my heart is money, spouse, right? Whereas I think the real thrust of that text is if we delight ourselves in God, he will give us different desires. Mm, yeah. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart, meaning our desires we'll want what he wants. will be supplanted yeah. and replaced by the desires of God. And so there is this real mixed view of self for Christians, that there's the created me, who God made me, um, who I am as Jay Trout's son, that's different than other people, that's not all necessarily bad. And so this idea of like trying to cookie cutter everyone into some type of social conformity, like communism would do. Right. You know, and so like that conservative view taken to the extreme would be like a communist, nobody gets to design their house, everyone's in the same block, well, yeah, yeah. you know, take a number. That's your job. There's no sense of like design. Yeah. There's just, we're all interchangeable. Yep. Our human and our humanity and our distinction doesn't really matter. And the contrast, the other side. So it's kind of like this, like romantic love myself, express myself view. And so there's a very mixed view of the self that I think we should have as. Well, that kind of takes us to, to, I guess the next question, which is, um, you just said, love yourself, right? If, if I'm, if, I, if I'm made in the image of God, but I'm also corrupted by sin, I can't, I can't tell when it comes to self. Should I love myself or should I hate myself, right? This feels like something a lot of people would probably have thought about and have an opinion, maybe had conversations about, right? Some people say the problem is you hate yourself too much and you need to love yourself more. A lot of other people would say, well, no, 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 hold on. The problem is that we love ourselves too much. That's what sin is. That's what pride is. We need to love ourselves less. Um, so self-love, self-hate, where, where do we go? Yeah, well, I think that one of the temptations that we face, especially as people have a high view, or not a high view, we have a low view of sin. We have a big view of sin, not a high view of sin. As people like... What's that distinction? Well, I just don't want to say we think sin is good. Usually having a high view of something means too oh, high. Oh, okay. So just as conservative evangelicals, we would have a big view of sin. Uh, I don't want to esteem sin or anything like that. Yeah. So I just misspoke. Um, but we have a big view of sin. What ends up happening sometimes is I would say like 
on the one hand, you have this like self-consciousness emerges, like this insecurity, hmm. like this eternal analysis of all my motives and this, this analysis paralysis where I'm going, check my motive, check my motive, check my motive. And you never act. You never do anything. I'm it's only, a, I'm only a worm. Yeah. I'm only depraved. Yeah. I, only. I really think about it. It's like the, the pubescent boy or girl at the pool party who is like, everyone is noticing me and it creates this insecure self-consciousness. Mm. And so that's not self-awareness. That's not knowledge of self, self-consciousness in like this frigid, insecure reality is not. Yeah. We, we call it in our house, we call it the over-exaggerated sense of self. Yeah. You know, you think everyone's staring at you. You think everyone's judging you. They actually don't care, <laughs> but, but you get pretty preoccupied with yourself um, it, you know, overly introspected navel, navel gazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's self-obsession, hmm. self-consciousness, self-obsession. Yeah. And I think that sometimes, which is interestingly is kind of both an expression of self-hate and self-love. Yeah. And it's confusing and it's the, I love myself. I can't stop thinking about myself. I hate myself. I can't stop thinking about myself. Yeah. And so that's self-conscious on the one side. On the other hand, there's this huge like self-esteem culture. Sure. The esteem of self. Like, oh, I yeah, just that, think, that was elementary school growing up for me and probably you too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just remember talking to people who say, I struggle with low self-esteem. And I didn't understand what that meant because I just remember thinking like. We, we are two of the more confident people in the world. So I don't <laughs> yeah. know if, well, I don't know if either of us have struggled I mean, that much with self-esteem. Well, I, mean, I mean, the language of esteem, like I esteem myself. I just had no idea what they were talking about. Hmm. And just thinking like, well, then don't do that. <laughs> you know, don't struggle sure. with self-esteem. But it ends up being that people think the answer for insecure, self-conscious people is esteem. Hmm. Oh, you're self-obsessed. You can't think about, can't stop thinking about all the bad stuff. Well, the answer for your low, insecure view is to have a higher view, an, an esteem yourself view. You're not ugly. You're pretty. You're yeah. nice. You're yeah, smart. Yeah, it's just affirmations. It's an affirmations-oriented view of self-esteem. But the problem with self-esteem is it's not really rooted in reality. It's just rooted in, like, saying things to yourself. Hmm. So it's a lot of self-talk. Like, uh, people will say their daily affirmations and to try to build a self-esteem. And sometimes those daily affirmations can be biblical things. I'm a child of God. Yeah. I'm God's creation. My body is a body he gave me. Those type of things. But most of like the secular culture talks about these esteems. It's like, you're awesome. You'll be a millionaire one day. People like you and want to be around you. And it's like, maybe you won't be a millionaire. Maybe people don't like you, don't want to be around you. <laughs> we So they yeah. end up kind of being this like hyper-affirmative, self-affirmative view. And that ends up being like a form of arrogance, like where I'm going, it's a, it's a, it's a view of self apart from God. It's a view of self just where I just think highly of myself and I think mm. I'm great. And so people tend to flip back and forth. It's because self-esteem is hollow and self-consciousness is painful. And so you get a too high of you, too low of you, you flip back and forth and you miss it. And the, the thing that I kind of want us to try and pursue is not a self-esteem or self-consciousness, but it's actually like a self-efficacy. Like okay. the ability to do things and accomplish things. And God mm -hmm. has given me a purpose and I can accomplish that purpose and that ends up kind of being what I think is a healthy understanding of self-awareness. Okay. That I am designed and I'm sinful. And so there's this dual reality that I will have times when I esteem myself 
And that is fair if that is because of my identity is created. And I'll have times when I'll analyze and be a little bit self-conscious. And that is fair. That's because I'm noticing my sinfulness. Hmm. And so there's almost a passiveness with regards to my goodness and an activeness with regards to my awareness of my sinfulness. Yeah, the biblical word that pops in my head, you know, before we were talking about the biblical word of self-control, the biblical phrase here that comes to mind is sober-minded. Yes. Right? Sober-mindedness is seeing things the way they really are. It's not under the influence of some other thing. It's, it's seeing it kind of the way God sees it. And so that's kind of what I'm hearing you say is that we should be able to, at the same time, and this borrows a phrase from Tim Keller, say, you know, I'm far more wicked and sinful than I ever imagined. And at the very same time, I'm far more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. And that is a sober-minded view for a Christian, is to say, um, man, I have all sorts of reasons to examine myself, and I have all sorts of reasons to take confidence in the identity that Christ has given me. That's sober-mindedness. That's the best kind of self-awareness. Yeah, and I think our you know, the goal here is to critique the hell out of culture. right? There are these, all these voices telling us who we are, how we are, what it takes to be good enough or not good enough. And this is why the biblical view produces a sobriety. One, because it tells us the truth. And especially, I think that one of the like apologetic or things that could be helpful in terms of like arguing for like the, the, the reality of the Christian faith is just the resonance with reality. Like that there is a creational good and a sinful distortion yeah. that we all, if we're honest, see it in ourselves. Like there's aspects of us that are good because they're the parts that God designed creation and parts of us that are bad. And that places a real self-awareness, a self-efficacy, um, a sober-mindedness. Yeah. So um, what we've talked about so far is stuff that I feel like I've thought a decent amount about and have even, you know, tried to pastor and talk people through. Uh, the next thing we want to talk about, I'll admit, is just kind of the deep end of the pool for me even. <laughs> so, you know, before this conversation, we kind of said, hey, where do we want, where, where do we see this conversation going. We don't have this scripted exactly, but one of the things that, that you kind of brought up was this question of what separates ourself from other selves. Um, that is not a question I've ever thought about, but it's you, something you think is important. Uh, and so help me understand kind of wh- what do we even mean by that idea of what separates ourself from other selves and why does that matter? Well, first I'd begin with this reality that when the Bible talks about us, so Seth and Luke, and the Bible gives us our identity, it gives us both basically the same list. Mm, yeah. Right? You're chosen, I'm chosen. You're holy, I'm holy. You're sinful, I'm sinful. And so what makes Seth different from Luke? Because mm. if I just kind of get my identity from a pure biblical list, like if I read the the, the epistles or... sure then we, ha- we have the same list. Yeah, you sort of imagine that then heaven will be kind of like, you know, every movie about the future where everyone's wearing the same clothes. <laughs> yeah. You're like, at what point in history do we just decide to all wear silver at the yeah. same time? Yeah. You know, but... Hopefully not soon. <laughs> do we just become yeah. this kind of uniform, I am a child of God, you know, kind of thing? Is that, That's kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, and, and this kind of gets to a big debate in psychology is how do you... Why are certain people one way and other people another way? Hmm. What produces that? And it's the nature-nurture debate. Okay. Right? Are you a product of yeah. nature, your biology? Sure. Are you a product of nurture, sociology? 
And both of those, if taken to full extent, can cause huge problems, right? Mm -hmm. Both can produce an absolute passiveness and a true like victim reality that if it's like, well, my biology, my biology dealt me cards. Yeah. The end. Mm. And it's like this deterministic, what will be, will be my genes have written my story Mm. and actually like purest naturalistic evolutionists would hold to a biological determinism Mm. that anything that makes us who we are is just the product of chance. Our brains have fizzed in a certain way. Our synapses have fired. Our neurons have fired. And it's all been this just one gigantic dominoes effect. Yeah. That there's a big bang and then flick. And here we are, you and I, that our brains have trillions of dominoes in them. And they're all just cause effect, cause effect, cause effect, cause effect. There's no true agency. Uh, And that would be like a pure nature situation, right? Probably not a lot of people would hold that firmly to that. People confessionally Mm. would say that. Yeah. Like there's probably a lot of biology professors or even ethicists. But they still try to send their kids to a good school. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Still try to feed them good food. But the reason they send their kids to a good school is because they're brain happened to fire that way hmm. so okay so they can verbalize their choices but they're not real choices okay and so they can only describe what is happening they can't assign true value to it and so the reason i want to send my kid to a good school is because my synapses happen to tell me it's a good thing i can't just decide that's not a good thing and if i do decide it's not a good thing that's just because my synapses fired differently and so so that's the nature, extreme nature side. Yeah, extreme nature side. And these two both kind of converge at a point. But this extreme nurture side of sociology is this kind of blank slate view. Yeah. That is pretty typical. Uh, yeah, that seems far more common probably. Yeah, probably more common. And some of it's rooted in nature. And so especially because most secular people just are evolutionary biologists, mm. like at their core, that's kind of their worldview. Yeah. These kind of have some serious Venn diagram realities. But this idea of you're born a blank slate and then society imprints on you values and goals and dreams. And, you know, you kind of internalize your parents' desires and you act on them Mm. if you're a firstborn. But if you're a secondborn, you act on a little bit less because you want to differentiate yourself from your older siblings. And so there's kind of like all these Mm. cause-effect social things. So both of these eliminate the will and you kind of end up being either a victim of biology or a victim of sociology. Have you ever seen the documentary Three Identical Strangers? I have not, no. Have you heard of it? No, tell me about it. Oh, man. See, I don't want to tell you much because it's it's probably... How, how new is the documentary? Uh, it, I think, came out two or three years ago. Oh. But it's probably... It's among the most entertaining and interesting movies I've watched in the last however many, three or four years. And I watch about 20 or 30 movies a year, so... It was fascinating. Um, I I won't kind of ruin it all for you, but essentially it's about these three identical triplets who were separated at birth and raised by different families Mm. who end up kind of through amazing, amazing (laughs) dynamics meeting each other. Mm. And um, it really is an exploration of was it nature or was it nurture? 
because yeah. there's these remarkable similarities. There's the, also these remarkable differences. Well, what, uh, how do you explain that? And you you go part of the movie thinking it's this, part of the movie thinking it's that. Yeah, uh, and you kind of have this back and forth. What is it? Um, and in some ways, I mean, I guess I say all that to go. It feels a little bit unknowable, unsolvable. Like, it, it, and you just sort of, I think, if you're intellectually honest, you kind of go, well, of course you're, you're, you know, some way who you are because of your DNA and. And of course, you're somewhat who you are because of how you're raised and the people you're around. Like, it, it almost seems like, I mean, not to me, it just seems kind of like a dumb debate. Like, you know, are you a product of your biology? Yes. Are you a product of your environment? Yes. Like, why Why is this a debate? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So the triplets are the almost all sociology or psychology right now. Like the pinnacle of that research is twin studies. Sure. Because... Twins who are separated at birth are the only real people you can do these experiments on right. and test them. And so there's a lot of things that they see end up being predominantly nature or predominantly nurture. Like one of the mo more interesting things is like how uh, they've demonstrated that conservative or progressive political instincts are genetically oriented. Okay. Some people are wired to keep things the same. And some people are wired to change things. Oh, wow. And so it's a disposition. And so, and it's actually close to 50-50 that about 50% <laughs> of people are wired to change things. And about 50% of people are wired to conserve things. And that obviously manifests politically in different ways. And so twins raised in different homes, one raised in a super liberal home, one raised in a super conservative home. They have a tendency of proclivity. It's not totally fatalistic. Mm. Uh, but these twin studies are a big deal. And you can, so part of it is you can kind of back up and go, okay, both of these are assuming a naturalism, hmm. assuming a secularism. God's not involved. Right. If he is involved, he's just the first one to flick the domino. He maybe set up the dominoes, but he's not really engaged during process. And so this idea of like nature, nurture, biology, sociology, uh, I think the idea of both resonates with the scriptures, hmm. that we have things we inherit from our fathers things we inherit from our mothers and we have a real will and real choices and sociology really affects us mm. and the spirit is at work in our life superseding and even healing all that the other three things have done mm. poorly. Yeah. So there's really three factors, all three of which, so kind of like think about a three circle Venn diagram. There's the will, there's biology, there's sociology I think you can see all those things in scripture and the spirit is not a separate circle, mm. but he works in and through those yeah. circles. The spirit heals our will. The spirit works through our parents. The spirit works through um, sociology, right? And false spirits like demonic spirits work through our will, work through our parents and work through our sociology. And so there's this multi-layered, multifaceted view. And so what we say is what separates Seth from Luke? It's, well, it's, on the one hand, there's DNA. There's who our parents are. Yeah. On the other hand, there's culture, um, the house that my parents raised us in. On the other hand, there's this idea that kind of doesn't necessarily supersede but works through all those things. It's that God made Luke and God made Seth. Hmm. It's not just Luke's parents made Luke, but right. it's God through Luke's parents and God and, and that the Spirit is working through us in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many things that uh, make me different than my parents mm. and things that are a part of me that are 
like even like my siblings are they're inexplicable differences hmm. and i'd say that there's an element to which god creates each individual individually using ingredients but not limited to the ingredients of biology and sociology so um let me ask a, a question that i'm sure you, i'm sure you could answer but uh I'm curious how you would think about this. So one of the things we talk a lot about is how, you know, in Romans 8, it says that we are, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, right? We're, we're as followers of Jesus, uh, made in his image, uh, given the spirit, given that new birth in the process of becoming like Christ. So does that, <laughs> what, what does that mean as it relates to our individual personality? So should I think about it as, that I'm going to become more like Jesus' personality or that my personality is going to become more like Jesus' personality would be if he were me? <laughs> I don't even know if that... I'm not even sure I'm asking a question that makes sense. Yeah, it's actually a really important question, and there's different schools of thought within the church that have done that, or within Christian tradition, I'll say that, not within the church. So the question is, what is the relationship to, with grace and nature? Right? And so the Roman Catholic Church teaches that grace is super additive or uh, super additive to nature. So there's like your nature and it's relatively neutral. So they don't have like a, a fully original sin. So um, the, the doctrine would be called semi-Pelagian or Pelagian. So Pelagius was a, um, I think, third or fourth century person who existed in the time of Augustine. Augustine taught the doctrine of original sin that we all are in Adam fallen. Whereas Pelagius taught that we're born blank slates. So again, even though... Um, tabula rosa. Yeah, the right? tabula rosa, B.F. Skinner, yeah. you know, the the uh, cognitive behavioral therapist who kind of popularized some of the blank slate stuff in the 20th century, Pelagius taught that, Yeah, you know, 1,700 years before him, theologically, not so psychologically. Yeah. So the Roman Catholic Church has a semi-Pelagian view, um, is a generous way of putting it, a really negative way of putting it is Pelagian. So uh, <laughs> there is like a, through baptism as an infant, you can undo your, your sinful nature is kind of undone. So okay. you kind of become a neutral person. So that's your nature, like the neutral person. And the grace comes in and adds. So it's super additive. Grace mm. is additional to, okay. or super additive to nature. Yeah. Then there's the, um, what I'll just summarize is the, the reform view, which is that grace restores nature that it's undoing the effects of sin. I kind of think about, like if I had a, a picture of Luke Simmons in my office, big smiling, kind of like North Korean. We have a, a picture, of our, <laughs> picture of our fierce leader in all the offices. A picture of Luke Simmons in the office. And That's just got to be massively weird, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I like the decorations in here. They're of me. Yeah, me, so. me, I love myself. I keep my picture on my shelf. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good rhyme in there before. Yeah, we use that with our kids when they have that over-exaggerated sense of self. We'll <laughs> yeah. go, oh, me, me, I love myself. It's kind of our way of poking fun. Anyway, we have digressed here. We, we probably need to do a whole episode on nature so, and grace and so plagiarism like and all that. So the grace restoring nature, yeah. it, I think it, it is, a, is a reality that there is a, a you that is the created you that uh, as an image bearer of God is representative of Jesus. Yeah. And contains emphases of his personality and even his character that other identities don't have. Yeah, it's not to say that there's insufficiencies there, but there's emphases there. And so grace comes into our life, and it's kind of like 
wiping, like if I had the picture of you in my office, and it's just and then someone came in and just smeared mud all over that picture, distorted the image. Grace comes by and like wipes clean the picture without destroying the picture. So we could, in a sense, say that when we're each becoming like Jesus, we're also becoming like we would have been without sin. Yeah, in a sense, grace makes us into who we really are. Hmm. We are becoming ourselves when we become more like Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we all be, suddenly have the same personality and wear the same clothes. And, yeah, you know, because yeah, because sin is parasitical; it comes in, it distorts it. It corrupts. Yeah. And so whenever we're sinning, we're not acting like who we ought to have been in the creational sense. Yeah. We are acting like ourself in the sinner sense, but we're not acting like ourselves in the creational sense. Mm. And so sin is restoring our nature and healing us to what we would already be. And so, so Dallas Willard does, he has a quote where he says that um, maturity for us is like becoming who Jesus would be if he were us. Mm. And yeah. so... Grace works in our life, and our view of self kind of progresses towards becoming who Jesus would be if he were us. Yeah. So let's start to land the plane then, and let's move toward, um, if we're talking about all this uh, self-control, sober-mindedness, the best kind of self-awareness, how do we, how do we grow in self-knowledge? How do we grow in self-awareness? I think the big, the big two schools of thought here, like one is like the rationalist school, which is like the... Uh, scientific method i would call it like you test observe repeat and this is like the go and journal a lot okay i would call it like that which is interesting that journaling a lot is not a predictor of self-awareness in any sociological or psychological studies huh that's interesting like when they go and try and test people's sense of awareness which is self-awareness would be are you aware of how others perceive you in reality so i'm aware of how i am in the social setting yeah that the people who spend the most time journaling tend to be at least self-aware. Hmm. And you could say, is that because they know they're not self-aware, so they're journaling a ton to try to get self-aware? But anyway, the sure. you could even sign people to journal, and what's up happening is that kind of self-conscious self-analysis actually creates lower self-awareness. Hmm. Like sociological, psychological studies demonstrate that just... So you're not anti-journaling. You're just saying if you're going to journal as a path towards self-knowledge and self-awareness... It may not be what you It mean. can produce a self-obsession that yeah. distorts your ability to see yourself clearly. Okay. And that hyper-analysis, self-consciousness thing hmm. that sometimes looking longer in the mirror is not the answer. Okay. And so you could think about journaling as looking in the mirror. Yeah. Like there's an amount that helps you be sure. self-aware. Yeah. And there's another amount where you start to notice things that other people don't notice. Sure. And, there, and we should say there might be all kinds of other good reasons to journal for other stuff. Um, yeah. And... You're not a, you're not anti-journaling. That's not the takeaway here, but that, it is to that say, is not the takeaway here. Yeah, but I think anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so that's like the kind of the rationalist self like yeah deal. The other view is like the romantic view, which is just the let it out <laughs> and kind yeah. of let it go view. Uh, Elsa. Yeah, yeah. Let it's it the go. Elsa view. Let it go. Come I'm not holding back anymore. Back anymore. It's time to see what I can do. Yeah, and so that 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 kind of view is, again, rooted in like the good view of self and whatever. Yeah. But I think the growing in self awareness is like a multi layered process. Mm. And so both of those views that we just talked about, kind of the the rational view, the romantic view, um, either self avoidance or self obsession, however you want to call those things. We have a lot of self apostrophe <laughs> religion here. Yeah. Uh, um, but they're still individualistic. 
Mm. It's me finding something, me letting something out. It's me doing an exercise to yeah. do something. Where self-awareness is actually more about, uh, it's it's an inherently relational process. Mm. Beginning with who has God, this other person made me. Mm. And then who is the spirit making me? And then it's who would Jesus be, another person be, if they're in my shoes? And then it's who am I in this family to which God has placed me? And it's who am I in this church to which God has placed me? Mm. And so there's actually this, so I think that biblically asking someone, tell me about your experience of me and what you see in me, good and bad, mm. is an infinitely more valuable practice than journaling. Because it's yeah, it's, sure. it's putting off this individualistic, romantic, rational view of the self and actually putting on a a socially embedded identity. Yeah. That you're going, I'm it, a person yeah, in the that's community. That's so interesting. I, I think about I think about people I know who don't they're not very self aware. And yet in their minds they're very clear about who they are. But what makes them not very self aware is they don't seem to realize kind of the impact they have on other people, the way other people experience and perceive and relate to them. And so it's interesting because they don't you know, they don't necessarily think, I don't know who I am. They, yeah. They're convinced who they are, but that's actually not necessarily meaning they're self-aware. And I know for me, uh, you know, to whatever degree I've, I've grown in self-awareness, a lot of it has come through people saying, hey, Luke, <laughs> I see this thing that I don't know if you see. Um, let me point out this thing that, you know, you're maybe not aware of. It's, it's been sometimes through me asking people, you know, hey, what, what comes into the room when I come into the room? Yeah. What comes with me that I don't necessarily notice? Ah, that's hard to do. <laughs> I mean, that's painful. a, that's a, yeah, that's really painful. It's probably why a lot of us don't pursue it. Yeah. And so there's the too low a view of self or would see the view of, uh, this kind of hyper analysis and your ability to be self-aware is a product of your ability to analyze. Hmm. The more you analyze, the more you're self-aware. Then there's the self-expressionist view which is rooted in your ability to speak and decide. Okay. The more self-aware you are, the more you can definitively say, here's who I am. That kind of speak and decide. Both of those schools kind of become personality test obsessed. <laughs> Both of those schools of thought kind of are still individualist. But I think a biblical view, and even is that our ability to be self-aware is more rooted in our ability to listen. Mm. Not our ability to speak, not our ability to analyze, mm. but our ability to listen. Listen to God, listen to God's people, listen to people who love us. Yeah. And to really kind of be silent, not necessarily be speaking. Yeah. And so that's the great irony is that I discover myself by listening, mm. not by analyzing or speaking. Yeah. And so the question is like, who do you listen to? How do you listen to them? Mm. How do you go about doing that? And that's, I think, the pain of the process is in listening, I'm always confronted. Sure because I have a view of myself and when other people tell me their view of me, I can decide that they don't understand me or I can listen yeah. and kind of go back to the drawing board on my view of myself. Yeah. And so I think that the predominant discipline that produces self-awareness is the posture of listening. Yeah. It's listening to the Lord and his word, right? The, the words described as a mirror, um, you know, the person who's not a doer of the word is like a person who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like. The scripture is to be this mirror that, that helps us see what's re really there, uh, tells us what's true about ourselves that we might believe or not believe, and listening to others. 
Yeah, and I bet if you went through and thought about like the self-aware people, they'd be like, oh yeah, that guy, that girl, they're self-aware. Most of the time, they're good listeners. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't know how to totally, you know, chalk that up, you know, but but I do think that that kind of mixed view of self, self is creation, self is sinner, self is new creation. Um, So I just kind of want to rehash all the different selves we've had. We have self-conquest, self-expression, self-control, self-esteem, self-conscious, self-aware, self-obsession, self-avoidance. And the final one, which we're going to, which I want to describe as the listening person, is a self-forgetful person. Hmm. A person who is predominantly caught up in what the other person is interested in. Yeah. And the person who is no longer self-conscious or self-obsessed, but they're able to really enter into the other person's reality. Yeah. And by that, I mean predominantly God's reality. Yep. How is God telling me who I am in the scriptures and by his spirit? And who are these other people and how are they going about the world? So the most self-forgetful, the best listening people end up being the most self-aware and the most healthy. Well, and that sounds like love. Right, and that's what we started with. If it's just knowledge for knowledge's sake, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And a self-forgetful person sounds like a really loving person, yeah. who uh, moves toward others, listens to others, and uh, yeah, that's who that's who we want to be. So, and that can be complicated because a lot of people will try to be self-forgetful as a means of becoming self-aware. Hmm. It'll end up happening is they'll just kind of become self-conquest hmm. folks who are like yeah. trying to suppress themselves. And so it's not actually about suppressing the self, but it's about investing in the other that makes me in a healthy way self-forgetful. Hmm. And so it's really this curiosity, this listening, entering in yeah. that I kind of am able to draw people out and be in a more healthy place. So going back to even like the knowledge of God, instinct, right? Covenant friendship with him, these two books he's written, yeah, um, the word and his creation, listening to creation, I listen to people, listen to his word, I I read and I and I hear, and so seeing the self as planted in that world and as a as a creation of the God who is love, so this kind of covenant friendship with God, that when I listen to Him, I become kind of caught up in His view of what's going on and of His mission, what's going on. Yeah, I actually become sober. Yeah, sober minded. Yeah, because I'm located in the real world. Mm. Well, Seth, I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate the depth of thought. Um, my brain's a little tired even just processing it. Um, but I think it is pushing toward uh, us being more loving, um, more aware of who God says we are and who he is and what it's like to live in his world. And so this has been a fun series of conversations on knowledge. And um, I just want to tell those of you listening, we'd love to uh, have you share this. If there's people that you think would benefit from this conversation, be sure to let them know about it. Also, if you have ideas, if you have things that you'd like us to push into on this, uh, no promises, but we'd love to hear what you would uh, what you would enjoy hearing and learning more about. So you can just email us. Uh, my email is Luke Simmons at redemptionaz.com. Seth's is Seth Trout with uh, two T's at the end at redemptionaz.com. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to hear ideas you have or questions you have. And uh, Seth, thanks so much, man. Yeah, it's fun. fun. It. I love how we can talk about things in depth. Yeah. And then it ends up being listen to people. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the way it lands is so simple. Mm. I think that's one of the things I love about God's world. So we can talk about it academically, but in the, the day it's listen to God, listen to people. Well, let's go do it. All right, y'all. Talk to you later.